Welcome to Dug Too Deep, the officially unofficial podcast for the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. On Amazon Prime, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're back with another episode for season, or sorry, episode three, uh, titled Adar. This is a feedback episode. Aaron, I hear tell of a large book full of feedback. Yeah, there's a tome. The Red Book of Feed March. And it's written in a Harfoot hand. Oh, okay. I was going to see if it was marked with the the symbol of Sauron or. Well, but only heat can reveal it. You have to throw it in a fire and then it's paper. So it doesn't have the same kind of like, you know, (laughs) it just burns. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You get to read the the words as each page (laughs) is birthed from in front of you and then it's done. So perfect. We're going to we're going to we're going to read that and not throw it in a fire. Uh Dug too deep at baldmove.com is how you send us. So you're like, how, how do I get these takes on the air? Well, you can you can run the gauntlet at dug too deep at baldmove.com. Uh, do you have any did you have any other thoughts on the I haven't I, the the Lorehounds lore podcast came out just this morning while I was compiling feedback and I didn't have a chance to listen to it yet. That was one of my mm. one of my regrets. I've had a busy week, busy weekend. Um, no, I had roughly the same problems that I had on first okay. watch on second watch. I didn't feel like it was any better or worse. Um, I felt like we we're in pretty yeah. good company, uh, as we'll see in the feedback. Uh, finally, dug too deep at baldmove.com. Let's move on to Lena. This says, Hey, boys. Hey, Lena. Quick note the Bronwyn tells Arendir in episode two the town they are going to investigate is where she's from. So, turns out he didn't bounce her on his knee as a babe. As a baby, might bounce around his knee as a okay. babe. I don't know. Um, so he was watching the, over a different city. Different well, that was my there. question. This uh, Ostirith, is it just for the one settlement? I would, I would have thought that yeah. the whole idea Aaron Deer and his buddy going around from town to town was like he was on some kind of migratory cycle. Like every few weeks, he would stop by and be like, "All right, are you guys, are you guys evil again?" Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what kind of watch this is. Like, are you are you evil? Is, any, is have you felt any evil stirrings? You know, you know, a, little, a tinge. Yeah, the other day. Has has any has any cows gone around giving blood milk? Have you seen any mm. black rot amongst your corn? No. Suspicious okay. Tunnels. I'll be back in two weeks to see if uh, you guys have have gone evil again. You're so, probably right. I, you can't really install a tower for every town. I, I just don't. I think mean, you could. you could. You could. Why? How paranoid are these elves, you know? Yeah. Um, probably time. pretty paranoid. They had they thought their joys would be unending, and now they're it's like they're like the boomers, you know? Uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> no one told them that there might be bad things. What, no, that's not true. Hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess it just depends. Um, we've got a lot of email on this. Um, the idea about the elves and their their viewing of age gaps and humans in general that uh, we'll get to later on. Hmm. Um, Layla says a lot, a lot of lays, a lot of lay and Layla and Lena is up front. Slight throwback to the first episode. Do you find? Do you think that Finrod or Lindor, as Aaron prefers? <laughs> uh, I'm going to hear about that a lot. I can tell. Yeah. Do you think that Finrod's words of wisdom to Gladriel were a callback or I guess call forward to Frodo and Sam going through the dead marshes? They had to keep looking forward and to keep their hopes alive like the boat that Finrod mentioned. If Frodo and Sam looked down into the faces of the dead and despaired, they would fall into the marshes, sink like a stone and be lost forever. Hmm. To me, 
This makes Finrod's last line to his sister even more interesting because it basically says, seems to say that sometimes the only way to tell the difference between good and evil is to touch the darkness. Seems risky. What do you guys think? It's interesting. I know there are a lot of repeating themes in Tolkien's work, and I could certainly see this being one. Maybe it's not like, you know, consciously or directly related, but certainly thematically, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I I think it is an interesting point that it's all well and good to like, you know, keep looking up, keep being positive. Um, but that sometimes that advice only will take you so far. If you're in the middle of like an existential war or if you're in the middle of, you know, maybe there's groups of people that you think are lying to you that you care about and people that think that are, you know, looking after your best interests. Uh, what is what's the best path for you to follow when there doesn't seem like there's any path clearly defined ahead? I, I guess like if you are a person of pretty strong moral convictions and fortitude, what fear would you have to like just randomly pick a path, you know, and like, I'm going to use my gut and my intuition because otherwise it seems like you would say, well, you just never get off the boat. Like, you know, that's not going to be the, the, the wise course of action. If your boat gets hit by an iceberg, you know, like, well, I'm just going to stay on this boat because I don't know, you know, you got the, the, the light above and the light below who knows. I don't know. Yeah, I feel you. It's like uh, if a if, if someone got cancer and the diagnosis was bad and they were like, I don't know, I it, it'll be fine. It, it'll work itself out, right? Right. And so they just didn't go seek treatment for it because they were always looking up. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that probably wouldn't work out very well for them. You need a touch yeah, of, like if- uh, to touch the darkness to, to get treatment for that. <laughs> Yeah, like in general and good to, to live well, you don't want to drink poison. You want to stay away from radio, uh, radioactive, uh, radioactive stuff. And you certainly don't want steel mm-hmm. carving your flesh. Right. But to survive cancer, you're going to have to probably do all three of those things um, under the care of a physician, and all that kind of stuff. So, like, mm-hmm. I think there's a little there's there's little of that, you know, that like if you want to be a, ma- a person of action. Um, and, and you're at a, a pr- branch in life where it's uncertain, which is the ethical and moral way to go forward. Like, it, it's not like saying swim in the darkness. It's more of like, don't be so afraid of swimming in the darkness that you are, you just stay paralyzed on, on shore. Yeah, yeah. Because that can lead to a lot of great evil, too. If mm-hmm. the people there are just like, you know, I don't know. I'll just sit on the side and we'll see what uh, happens with the good and evil situation here. Totally. I, that's how I looked at it anyway. Um, Ruby says, I listened to your feedback show where you're talking about the viewing numbers and you're right to distress any corporate numbers provided by Amazon. I knew it. I fucking knew that Bezos was up to no good. Samba TV does a breakdown by smart TV devices. that looks at household. Now there is an article from media play news that I'm going to be quoting from here. Uh, Ruby says the rings of power had decent numbers, but it's not beating house of dragon or even stranger things for yet. I think the Rings of Power is a decent show, way better than Wheel of Time and visually amazing. But the writing, storytelling and acting nowhere near close to the House of the Dragon or Stranger Things. So from this article, uh, it says Prime Video announced the premiere of its highly touted and expensive prequel series. The Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power was viewed by 25 million people. The most by any Amazon original content. We reported that last week. We're like, wow, that's a fucking a lot of people. But that's a lot of people. 
Uh, new data from the Samba TV suggests the rings bow while good was not as spectacular as hyped. Now, you might ask, like, what is this Samba stuff? Samba gathers viewership data via proprietary technology on opted in smart TVs across 24 of the top smart TVs globally purchased and captured content that crosses the TV screen regardless of source. That means it's not looking at it's actually looking at the pixels being displayed at the screen to report this information. This is why I have never hooked my smart television up to the Internet because fuck that. (laughs) You still want anybody knowing what you're watching? huh? Absolutely not. Are you kidding? Um, so now keep in mind, we are trusting one opaque corporation over another opaque corporation. Mm. Uh, when we talk about this proprietary technology, um, but again, as I said, new data suggests that the rings while good might not be as spectacular as hyped. Indeed, 1.8 million us households watched the Lord of the Rings, the rings of power episode one on prime video during the L plus three day. This is the release plus three day. It's it's often used in streaming media. Mm-hmm. According to Samba TV, another 1.3 million U.S. households watched episode two during the L plus three day window. Uh, the series debut marked Prime Video's highest three day viewership of any 22 premiere on the platform. Yet they debuted the first episode of season four of Stranger Things generated 2.9 million U.S. household watches. The debut of Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney Plus generated 2.1 million households tuning in. Uh, they also had some other gen- um, demographics information, such as HBO's House of Dragon premiere over-indexed by 3% among Gen, gen Z, while Prime's Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power under-indexed by 4% amongst the same audience, indicating House of Dragon might be doing a better job attracting younger viewers. Again, that's a seven-point swing. That's significant, but I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know if it's earth-shattering. Um, Samba found there was also a viewership drop off between episodes one and two of the rings of power, indicating that about one in four households that watched episode one were not interested in continuing to watch the next episode within that initial L plus three window. You will recall that house of dragon gained, I think three or 4% season episode one, episode two. So I think there's a difference when you release them at the same time though. People, you know, might not have time for two full hours of television, whereas they do for one in four days. I, I do eh, think that if that it's the weekend, I, I don't know. And it's Labor Day weekend, right? Yes. I I can't remember, but yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, Uh, Could be, could be that, you know, people were just out doing other things. Yeah. For your second episode. The other wrinkle is that Samba does not include viewership on non TV devices, such as mobile phones. However, if you were to Chromecast or otherwise Apple TV watch across your TV, it would still get that because, again, it, it's it's doing mm-hmm. pixel comparison. I don't know. I, I hear tell a lot of young kids, a lot of young folk, you know, 30 and younger, watch a lot of shit on phones, which blows my mind. But it blows my mind, too, but not for the same reason, I'm sure. It blows my mind oh, yeah? because that entirely occupies your phone. And that is not what I think. <laughs> a young person wants to do. I would think they would want to background watch while using the phone for some other purpose. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing? Just like, you're just ignoring all the text bubbles or are you like super distracted where it's like every 30 seconds, something comes and you pause and you respond to them and you get back and hey, yeah, I don't maybe. know. I, I, I think that it wouldn't surprise it. So I, I, it, I find it hard to believe the Amazon would just lie. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet that there's a way that they can look at the numbers 
for example, podcasts five years ago used to go by raw download metrics, like how many bits were transferred versus how many bits total divide that. And that's a fucking full listen. However, the way streaming stuff works, it turns out like, you know, as people more and more stop downloading entire episodes and just stream them, there's a lot of those bits that are being overcounted. So in the last five years or so, they've gone to unique listeners. And in our case, that's cut our perceived traffic in probably what, a, by an order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Um. So, like, I'm wondering if Amazon is using some kind of like, we'll find how many total bits we transferred, divide that by how many bits the average episode is, maybe divide it uh, by the average bits of a 720p, because how many people got 4K televisions and boom, you got 24 million people <laughs> watching. Because I yeah. I do, do not believe, based on everything I've seen, based on feedback, based on podcast traffic, based on... um you know, subreddit post engagement on our discords. I, it just doesn't seem like Lord of the Rings rings of power is as big as house of the dragon. Uh, let alone like two and a half times. As yeah. Big. Yeah. Yeah. Unless the, the only, the other thing is unless there's just a lot of family and older audiences watching Lord of the Rings rings of power that are not watching house of the dragon. And those people just don't, you know, like if my dad's watching, <laughs> rings of power because he really enjoyed you know in his 50s watching the shows come out like it and yeah maybe and they're just he, not they're not on podcasts he's, yeah he's watching it while he's scrolling tiktok on his phone so. <laughs> my dad's such a notorious tiktoker yeah we got a lot of rings of power to ponder we'll be right back after this short break and now let's dig a little deeper on Doug too deep Anyway, thanks thanks for that other perspective, Ruby. Let's move on to Raphael. Says, big time fan, been with you on this journey for more shows than I can remember. Well, thank you very much. Just watched the third episode and the cinematography continues to be stunning. In your take of the first two episodes, you mentioned if after some time we could get tired of this, and I think not. Numenor is just beyond amazing. When I watched the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, it always seemed like it was a world past its prime. The elves were leaving, dwarves were nowhere to be found, and men seemed like they'd seen better times. I got two questions for you guys. Am, am I correct to assume that this era is the peak of all three civilizations? Uh, all three races seem to be having a zenith based on their cities and culture. I, I would guess the elves wouldn't see it that way. Their height was probably when they all lived in Valinor. But. But so like one of the things that I've appreciated from the Lorehounds coverage and stirring of high school memories reading this stuff is that one of the things that the elves has got is that they, you know, you've got a big fish and small pond and small fish and big pond kind of thing. And a lot of powerful elves in Val, the land of Valinor are those big fish in a very big pond. You know, there's like high elf lords Mm -hmm. and literal demigods walking that continent. Uh, So if you think like, Hey, you know what? I bet I could build a bang, bang ass civilization. I could be a nice head of state. You got nowhere to be (laughs) when middle earth you know, there's a land rush going on. There's elves forging these kingdoms and whatnot. And, and, and now that men are coming on strong and, and forming their own civilizations and dwarves are now like elves want to want to carve out their own place and hold on to what they got. So I don't think it's their peak, but it's not far off. And, and they're trying to find ways to keep that peak going through their decline, because as the Lorehounds mentioned that like elves have 
a finite percentage of elf juice. Let's call it elf juice that, <laughs> okay, that they're, they're born with. And as they create, whether that's children uh, or powerful artifacts or great civilizations, they invest some of that elf juice into those things and they can't get it back. Um, once mm. all that elf juice is gone, they literally fade away into a spirit and they can no longer interact with Middle Earth. Their only thing to do there is to go to the uh, house of uh, the halls of Mandos where they can hang out with the other faded elves and wait for the end of everything on Earth to transpire. Um, so elves doing all these mighty works now, like they're probably starting to feel pretty dry and desiccated from an elf juice perspective. <laughs> what what do you do? What do you do to hold on to that? Uh, what temptations might you give into if you were granted another couple thousand years of keeping this good thing going? Mm. Um, and yeah. then on the men, it's the opposite. It's just like you see all these elves, you know, you're you're born and you know this elf guy and maybe you live a couple hundred years because you're one of the mighty men. But that dude has an age today and you're about to die. What the fuck? I want some of that elf juice, you know, uh, <laughs> some things going to be driving to conflict. But, yeah, I think you're right that this is probably the mightiest of all of the, you know, physical creation at at, 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 at this time. Hmm. Um, let's say second is Amazon Bezos exploring a new genre where they blend storytelling and going for broke tight cinematography. I say this because I've only seen this kind of cinematography in nature shows such as Planet Earth, etc. I've never seen a TV show that really takes advantage of our new 8K, 4K technological world. Frankly, I think it's overdue. For some, t- some time, I felt that most of the content out there doesn't take full advantage of what modern TVs can do. What do you think of that? I think that's fairly true. I don't... I mean... Look at the budget it took to get it done, too. I, I don't think there are a lot of companies that even could, let alone would, spring for this kind of show because um, you got to have a certain amount of reach and, like, guaranteed reach to make this worthwhile. So, yeah, I, I think, like, this show does look better than basically anything uh, that I've ever seen on television. And, and I think you'll probably get more of this as you know, the tech gets cheaper, all these effects get easier. Um, Cause it's going to continue to happen, but I don't know. That's, it's a very good looking show. Yes. And I appreciate like having it in HDR full 4k, uh, super high streaming bit rate. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's telling that when you go into a TV store or whatever, a Costco or a, a Sam's club that like all the show, all the TVs are displaying, these nature images like waterfalls mm-hmm. and the Serengeti and the uh, fucking Amazon tree frog on a waxy green branch because it's incredibly expensive. I mean, as we're seeing with Amazon's Lord of the Rings, it's incredibly expensive to stuff every inch of a 60 inch TV at 8K with like the kind of detail that's like worth doing. Like when you look at cinematic mode, a lot of TVs, what do they do? They up the yellow, they turn down the contrast they make the picture softer. They turn on motion blurring because cinema is just not that precise. You always need that kind of like, you know, Vaseline coat on the, on the uh, surface of the, 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 the camera glass so that you can see the fact that this shit is fake as fuck. You know, you don't want to see that. You want to, you want to get mm-hmm. that preserved. Like, Oh yeah. If I squint, this seems real. 
So I think that's, yeah, like it's just expensive to do that kind of world building where you like get all everything that stuff for free in because you remember when it was football games, right? They used to have football games running when 1080p was the thing because yeah, they were all being recorded in 1080p. It's real world scenarios. So all you got to do is yep. point the camera at it and it you looks can see great. every blade. Yeah. How many times you, see, you can see every blade of grass on the field? What? Yeah, because it's right? not fake. And the, the same is true of nature documentaries. They're just pointing a camera at something. It's an amazing high yeah. resolution, uh, amazing lens camera, but they're just pointing it. Yeah. Coral Reef is as amazing as Numenor, but you get, you know, no one had to go and fucking set set direct it, you know, and right, uh, set dress right. it rather. Yeah. I don't I, because like I said, it is expensive. I think as digital technology gets better and better and crucially as because like, you know, think about how much time it takes to render like a beautiful 1080p scene. Now quadruple the pixels for a 4K, quadruple mm-hmm. the pixels again for an 8K. Think of the bandwidth. Think of the computer processing time. It's expensive. So, mm-hmm. um, Andrea says it broke my heart when Sadok read out to all those proud fellows who died in a landslide. I had to look it up to be sure, but turns out Poppy is a proud fellow. It puts her concern for Nori and the Vince with Meteor Man in a different, extremely endearing light. Yeah, thanks for doing that, because I, you know, like I, I, I was definitely moved because I'm a big Poppy fan and seeing her bawling her eyes out at the, the list of people left behind uh, was definitely moving. And it makes sense that she broke on those because, yeah, it's, it's her family and uh, yeah. her being worried about Nori's family going through this, her best friend's family going through perhaps the best does the same kind of thing. Yeah. Mike says, hey, guys, just listen to the recap podcast was falling off my horse laughing about your discussion of the horse cheesing scene. My second watch, I couldn't help but put Eddie Murphy's voice in the horse's head when he smiles at the camera. This is the Shrek quote. Reminds me of when Donkey is turned into a white Bronco and he's prancing around saying, you hear what she said? I'm a trusty steed. Yeah, (laughs) that white horse was giving a lot of trusty steed performance. Mm hmm. And deserves an Emmy to be best supporting horse. If anyone else gets it, like we should riot, right? Yeah. Uh, Billy says, I think the first this is the first time I've substantially disagreed with the bald move take on something. Are you strapped in, Jim? Are you, are you in a place where you can you can receive criticism? Sure. All right. I thought that the fir- first T-Rop episode was stronger than the first two and got me really excited for the rest of the season. First off, I am a Tolkien fan, and I know these characters and locations pretty well, and I love how deep they're continuing to get with the lore. This is something I predicted. You remember I said in the very beginning of... Yeah. yeah, it's like, I get excited when I hear the name Elendil and Isildur and Numenor and Alpharazone and stuff like that, because I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, the story's about to get good. I get squinty-eyed. Yeah, if you've never read the appendixes or the Cimmerillion or the Unfinished Tales, you're like, these are just more crazy ass names mm-hmm. that I'm going to have to learn and and make associations with. And it feels like being given out homework rather than a dream you've had since high school, you know? Well, you, you got to make these people, you got to make these names into people, into characters that I care about. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the most important thing. And also... These shows aren't meant to be diagnosed at a minutia episode by episode, minute by minute. You're supposed to watch a whole season and be like, hey, I wonder what I thought of that. So, like, we had two amazing episodes, one episode where it's like, I'm not going to say it's not 
it's a it's a bad episode. It's just we really shifted into the deep part of the lore and a lot of names and a lot of things coming for not a lot of new locations. And, you know, you're not getting the benefit of essentially just leaning on Galadriel and Elrond and our leftover, you know, enthusiasm for hobbits slash Harfoot. Um, you know, some of this stuff starts to have to stand on its own. Like there's long stretches where just Aaron Dill and uh, 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 Elbrand. What's his name? Hellbrand. Mm, yeah. uh, having to carry the action and I, we got some other feedback where it's like well yeah anytime you meet new characters there's no reason to care about them when you start a new movie and some dude jumps on the screen for 30 seconds you're like who is this fucker why should i care about them mm-hmm. but you kind of are like if I mean, you're three the, out- the character introduction is supposed to be something that connects you with the character yeah and, and a lot of them do that it's a bad one and a lot of the non main character introductions we've had so far have been almost a mystery because like how it's he's not Halbrin, the guy who's immediately recognizable. You know what he's all about when he stops on the screen. It's Halbrin, the mysterious stranger who's probably got a lot more going on to them. You mm-hmm. know, it's and a meteor man. Too. It's like it's, I, it's fine. I'm not opposed but, to a mysterious person as kind of the hook. I just didn't yeah. feel like there was enough mystery to Helen Helen deal for me to actually like grab onto that and say, okay, his, his thing is he's a mystery. They, they like halfway rode that between like, Oh, he's a good guy who's going to help Galadriel and he's a mystery where there's more to uncover. And I wasn't feeling either side of that, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a lot of this Numenorean. It's like, they're having a smug off, you know, like we are the superior men of Middle Earth, <laughs> but I'm the more superior one because I'm keeping the ways pure and I still love the elves. Well, you're an elf. You know, it's like it's a lot of like it's politics, man. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the orc prison camp scenes were outstanding and did a great job establishing the stakes of this looming content. Billy continues conflict rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the looming content uh, in the last <laughs> few weeks. Uh-huh. These orcs to me felt a lot more evil and intelligent than those in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They felt a lot more realistic and menacing, both in the design and action. These guys are terrifyingly human-like and malicious in a way that goes beyond the cartoonishness I sometimes felt from the orcs in Lord of the Rings. The elks executions and the warg attacks seem much more significant, emotional, and scary than similar scenes in a trilogy. Have we ever seen humans or elves enslaved by orcs before and them interacting in this way, other than, of course, Merry and Pippin being used as luggage? Uh, I thought that shit was great regarding the lack of communication between elves and how they all end up in the camp. I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that these orcs either did some blitzkrieg attack or just watching the perimeters of the Southlands and force. And the elves are either just understanding this after winding up in the camp or aren't able to communicate it in detail. And Numenor, I thought the introduction of Isildur and the cadets learning to sail did a lot to establish the society of the Numenorians and their technology and the seafaring capabilities. Though, I have no insight into rope pulling. <laughs> okay. I, I thought the introduction to the family is quite reasonable. Overall, I love the feel of Numenor and how the city really felt like a lived-in place. We've never seen a city like this in Lord of the Rings. There's no commoner, normal life stuff in Gondor in the movies or even the books, really. They're doing an excellent job creating these scenes and vibes with only the most high level details to go off of. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't think any of this is not true, but I also think from people that are not as steeped in the lore, it is all this stuff is while great could also be intimidating and impenetrable, you know? Sure. No, I, but I agree with like the orc stuff. I thought those scenes were great. I thought, yeah, the, the, city of Numenor itself or it's not a city right it's a land what it's an island it's an island 
but they go it's to called Numenor. Yeah, there's different. Yeah, there's different parts and ca- yeah, cities and whatnot. Yeah. So what do I call the city that they were in? <laughs> Numenor Prime. I, I that'd be a great question for John and David because I okay. honestly don't right. know uh, the different parts of Numenor that well. I saw but a map that, of it and it looked like there's different cities and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. That, that city felt real, felt lived in. I agree with that. Um, I liked all that stuff. It, it was just really the storytelling that I had the problem with in that particular section of, of the, the show. Apparently, the city we were in is Arminellos. Arminellos. The capital city of Numenos. I might be butchering it. Arminellos. Um, but yeah, that's that's the city of kings hmm. there on Numenor. Okay. Um, and, I, and I like I said, I... I you're right. They did sh- like if nothing else, you understand the Numenor is a seafaring people. Mm-hmm. They're of the sea. That's where they're most comfortable. They trust in the sea. That's like they have a spiritual connection to it. And also, if you compare like you mentioned, like commoners, we saw the Southlanders are living. They're like in that burlap and, you know, sackcloth culture where everything's just kind of mm-hmm. rough hewn and they're farming mud and. <laughs> I mean, their community New- leader also works as an innkeeper, so right, and a butcher. They and don't baker. exactly have a queen. Yeah, he might he might make candlesticks on the side. <laughs> Compare that to Numenor. Like even the blue collar people are wearing gold and fine mm-hmm. silver, and they're like they're closer to elves. Like you know, I always thought it's hilarious in the Lord of the Rings. I think it's the Return of the King where they're reforging Aragorn's sword and they show elven smiths and they're all wearing their green jumpsuits and their hair is done perfect and their makeup's done perfect and just, they've got these like just grassle ha- hammers. Ting! Ting! Like if you've ever seen a blacksmith shop, it's yeah, yeah. a fucking OSHA violation in <laughs> j- j- just, just brought to earth and the elves still have everything like Numenor is closer to that where even the people that work hard or tradespeople still are fine and uh, manifestly educated and literate mm-hmm. and not so far off of the people, you know, that are that are leading them. Um, yeah, they're living well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, they got a lot of what uh, seems like people like the, and the, those Southlands would want for themselves, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to Justin says, one thing that took me out was all the orc canopies over the tunnel. There's this huge river of canopies growing over the land. How can they have not have noticed it? Speaking of the elves, there haven't been elves watching over the Southlands for a century. Maybe I missed something, but it seems like these canopies are a dead giveaway. Maybe. So, probably. It's pro- pro- possible that these tar these these things are effective camouflage, you know, seen from the air. It's also like I thought they were also telling the story of maybe the orcs were spreading a little more slowly deeper underground because they're under houses and whatnot. They're spreading under mm-hmm. entire human settlements and people think it's like rats under there. I wonder if they're at the, close to the surface now because they know that the elves have abandoned their quest. They've taken most of those wardens hostage. And now they're like, hmm. we're so close to the goal of finding, I think the rusty sword is what they're yeah. looking for that. They're, they're now acting pretty much in open, just bothering to cover themselves from the sun. And that's it. I, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause otherwise, yeah, these elves are boy, they're, they're not as sharp eyed as we've been led to believe. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Irish Monk says I love your show in the pod this is the first episode where I got worried about the pacing consider this as a thought experiment at the end of the previous episode we saw Iron Deer abducted only to wake in a haze in the orc camp and this at the end of this episode we see him awaken in a haze at the chance of Adar Adar 
What if instead of the failed escape scenes we had in this episode, we just had him waken to the haze of the chance of Adar Adar? What would we have missed? His two pals, the warg, the orcs that hate light, action scenes. To be honest, I was not wondering about the fate of his pals. We could have shown the warg, the orcs that hate light, and had action scenes in ways that move the characters and plot along. My point is, if you can remove an entire episode's worth of scenes and not lose anything about the character and plot arc, should they be included at all? That's a very good question. Um... I certainly enjoyed those scenes, but yeah, you're right. They're not essential. I mean, it, what's the difference here between the elves being captured and killed versus the elves just going home? I guess there's still some of them are still there to be led yeah. by Aaron Deer if he so chooses. But like, uh, and and he saw something up on this ridge. I'm trying trying to remember when he gets over the ridge, what he sees. It just looks like more woods to me. He saw his friend getting slaughtered and like in the, in the far off distance, there were just rings of orcs, you know, or maybe men because those orcs are out in the sun. Maybe these are. Yeah, you wouldn't Southrons that are going along with the regime. Yeah. So, I mean, if they use that information, then I guess it was somewhat important. I, although, you know, there are a million ways to get that information to Aaron Deer, right? Well, and also it's like it's a pretty hat cliche to have a leader like, you know, take us to your leader and they just bring you they bring some dude because mm-hmm. Aaron Deere is just some dude. He's a yep. low ranking warden and a whole hierarchy of and this is itself an outpost of a much larger, more powerful elf civilization. Right. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck would Adar go meet this guy like He's not the first elf they capture, won't be the last. He just makes a habit of like intimidating personally every prisoner. So you you kind of got to set him up as being a thorn in the enemy's side. Yeah, good point. So he gets personal attention from Big Papa here. Um, do you need 15 minutes out of an hour episode to do that? I don't know. But when it's I, as well I can, done as this, I certainly don't mind. Because I think there'd be a lot of people saying, oh, my God, this guy just shows up and he just he instantly in. in um, immediately introduced to the second ranking evil person in the whole continent. Like, oh, this is this is jetpacking. This is not paying it. You know, like I, you're kind of mm-hmm. damned if you do, damned if you don't. And again, just three episodes in, we got five more. A lot can change here. Uh, Steven says in Doug Too Deep episode three, Jim mentioned it took him two and a half hours to get through the episode due in part because the avalanche of names we were subjected to. My ears picked up and I smiled as I thought I know exactly how I can help Jim. It's called the audio description feature. It's a necessary feature on more and more media for the blind and visually impaired individuals like myself so we can have a viewing experience and parity with sighted audiences. As I, I did have this. Some- I did this with the movie Palm Springs, which was a very strange experience. That was like the ground, the kind of dark groundhog day. Uh-huh. With okay. Andy Samberg and... Yeah, that, that got was, you. It was an interesting experience. He says, I like to use this. Um, I don't always use it, and sometimes it's not available, but sometimes on shows like The Rings of Power and Hot D, I turn it on because the narrator usually repeats names and identifies important set pieces or MacGuffins that I might otherwise miss or forget after the scene de- ends. Like your podcasts often depend on uh, AD to fully appreciate shows and movies. Um, he says he's a composer and uh, who's partially cited one of his side jobs is working with studios in Hollywood to add AD to more shows and movies. Although Amazon is one of the worst offenders when it comes to dependable quality AD. Uh, T-Rop, for example, has rather Spartan AD, where their shows like HBO on Hot D have amazing AD and also happen to be narrated by a fellow AD 
advocate Roy Samuelson. So he's like, when in doubt, use one of your bonus viewings to turn on AD and see if it doesn't illuminate some of these names and locations better. Uh, sure. No, I, I think like I, I try and watch with subtitles on that watch because I'm extremely strapped for time is what it is in that first viewing because I need to be certain that I will have an outline for the following morning when we record the podcast. So my first watch, it, it, that's the thing with this. I, I try and get as close to the experience of the general viewer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as I can on my first watch. There's an exception here because I may or may not have time to get through a watch and then a rewatch with uh, an outline. Um, so I have to make sure that I get that outline. Uh, and that's why I watch it the first time and pause and rewind and do all these things, which a general viewer is not going to do. Yeah. So I, I don't know. The, the AD stuff might... It, I'm certain it would help in that regard, but it's going to take me probably even farther from the general experience of a viewer. So I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, because like it's, it's like you try to strike the balance of like what... Because most people, the vast majority of the people watch this stuff once... And then you start listening to podcasts and stuff. So, like, you want to respect that. But on the other hand, like, you also try to get, you know, uh, you try to help the people that have seen it only once appreciate mm-hmm. the, the the deeper complexities. Maybe their kid was screaming in the background for a scene. So, like, yeah, those kind of tools are pretty, pretty valuable. And it's just uh, and this podcast is a weird thing because we're yeah. recording the podcast the very next day or yeah. early on in the very next day. And I don't have time necessarily to do all the stuff that I would do on a regular podcast, which we have two days to prep and cover especially since two like we're really talking when you're saying one day you're talking 12 hours during eight of which i should be ideally sleeping a sleeping yeah Yeah, like they are really kind of screwing us (laughs) with the midnight releases of the rings of power so but we're we're doing the best we can Mm -hmm. uh thanks for the email moving on to j cube says i may be carrying 40 years with the baggage and admittedly don't care that much for jazz in general but i'm not loving the story direction in these three episodes Beautiful show, unquestionably, but story and writing don't rise up to the visuals. It's funny how people rag on the Hobbit movies, which I don't entirely hate. Whoa. Interesting opinion detected. But to me, this show has big Hobbit energy, way more than the Lord of the Rings, at least. I have big problems with the Galadriel's characterization. She's on this blind vengeance quest, which seems wildly out of character after we can assume she has witnessed what she has witnessed from Feanor and his son's similar obsession with Morton. Wait. Uh... Say what? Morgoth, I'm guessing, is what they're saying oh. here. And the Cimmerils. Aaron talked about how she was younger and impetuous, but he, she's literally 5,000 years old at this point. Okay. She's 5,000 years, but these are elf years, man, which I think the the uh, the the the, the uh, Lorehound said are like 144 human years. Okay. So, like... What's what's five thousand divided by one forty four? That is thirty four years old. She's a spry thirty four year old, All right. which is which is but a child as and and, and as as elves account it. You just gotta look. You see, you got. So, so this reminds me a lot of like um, I always thought it was dumb in Lord of the Rings where Legolas was literally like dumbstruck at the idea of someone dies and like processing grief because Legolas is 3000 years old. But if you do that math, he's not even, he's barely 18 and maybe in his life during the mostly peaceful third age, 
he's never seen anyone die. So like <laughs> you kind of like you either get the fact that these are truly immortal beings that see time differently. And they, they said that in the first episode of Elrond. Like, I think it wasn't like he just doesn't care about uh, Durin. It's that he literally does like thought like, oh, well, we lost touch for 20 years. That's like me not texting my friend for a week. We'll be fine when, you know, we get back and to mm-hmm. see the mortal elf like really hurt and offended by that. I think you just have to either you either have to grant that to the elves or you're going to have problems with it because like a lot of what they do is aloof and unseemly unless you un- really understand that concept. Um. J Cube says, I think the creators are trying to have their cake and eat it, too. They've taken out nearly 2000 years of lore from the show and condensed it, but then use up half of their runtime with completely new content they've made up. And that new content might be better than the part that they're actually adapting. But they also drop deep lore bombs nearly out of nowhere. Very little context for casual watchers. I think this is a symptom of the fact that they really only have the Lord of the Rings and the appendixes in those books and all this stuff like, you know, the Lorehounds, the Lorehounds help me appreciate the fact that a lot of stuff in the Cimmerillion, they just can't use. They might be able to reference it if it was name checked in like a song or something. That's another thing that a lot of songs mm-hmm. name check these old myths and legends like they do. But like they're skirting this line with the Tolkien estate between what they can and cannot. So they're trying to throw these Easter eggs in for people like yourself that have been reading and loving this for 40 years. But they're also trying not to get their asses sued. This is how we create art in the 21st century. (laughs) Yeah, this is so weird. Why the divide here? Why is the Tolkien estate being so... Just hamstringing their own their own content here i i think it's because tolkien the way they told it on the lorehounds is tolkien didn't really want to sell the movie rights to his stuff and he did because when he was in a pinch for money and he sold the lord of the rings and the hobbit and he, he also did it when technology wasn't available to even create one of these scenes let alone every single one of them yeah, I mean, they tried the animation and the Ralph Bashke stuff, and right. uh, that stuff didn't really work. But I mean, it, and and it, like, it, it, I I heard that like Christopher was kind of like, kind of trying to uphold his dad's original wishes and not letting the Cimmerillion and the unfinished tales and whatnot get you know like the the not expand the license that his dad kind of always didn't like. And there's also hints that maybe the new estate holders, the grandchildren of Tolkien are a little bit more like, hey, we want to get that money and less like, you know, what would dad really care about? You know, <laughs> is this some literature elitist kind of thing? I I, I think it's respect for your parents. Me. Like if your dad created a universe well, from, from him, like why? Yeah. Why was he so anti uh, other forms of media? Man, Tolkien's is an interesting guy, and I think that he like really saw purity and a pers- a personal thing in his content, and his dealings with Hollywood were probably the opposite. I mean, think about dealing sure. with the Hollywood of the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. you know, and how kind of exploitative they were with tales. And, and even today, it's not like you sell your story to Hollywood and you're guaranteed it's going to be treated with respect and dignity. So, no, like, far from it. And, and, you know, he's, you know, he's like creating languages and high art. And I think he probably saw cinema as, as probably vulgar, to be honest. So. Sure. Yeah. So a little bit, a little bit of a, a yeah. purist there. 
There's a lot more Rings of Power to ponder. We'll be back right after this short break. And now, let's dig a little deeper on Dug Too Deep. I got some speculation from J-Cubed. He says, I think I was hoping the Meteor Man might have been Tom Bombadil. I really didn't want it to be Gandalf, but now I'm almost positive it is. And we're seeing why Gandalf has such an affinity towards hobbits. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know about your Tom Bombadil, man, because the one thing that they established about Tom Bombadil is he is like this ancient eternal thing. I don't know why you take a joyride on a meteor to Earth um, this and forget himself. So upset wasn't in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and it's okay. one of those weird transition between the the tone of The Hobbit and the early goings of The Lord of the Rings, where it's all about Bilbo and his magic ring and the birthday party and fun and adventure and kind of then they go into the darker, like we're going to cut people's heads off and launch them over castle walls in the later goings of The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Bombadil was kind of like that transition of where he was still telling a twee children's story and there's this guy with the bright blue, yellow hat and the blue boots and he's singing the trees and, you know, he's immune to the ring's powers. And I don't think Tolkien to this to, to the day he died knew quite how to fit him into his legendarium. But um, him coming to the to Middle Earth on a comet would have probably created a lot of lore disputes. And he also says, I think Halbern might end up becoming one of the nine kings of men. And become a Nazgul. He seems like the kind of dude that would take a ring from a sussed stranger. Nice. Yeah. You know, the kings of the Southlands don't have the best reputation, right? Like when Gladriel's like, yeah, unite them under banner, but this time do it for good. Well, I could see that path. I could see that path paved with well intentions leading to hell. Mm hmm. Uh, Dante backs up uh, J-Cube's suspicions here. He says, I think Halberd could be that kid's father. We talked about uh, Bronwyn's uh, child last episode. He also has the kind of low sense morality. is pretty self-involved, which means he's being set up to become a prime candidate for one of the nine to become the Nazgul. Okay. I like what the theory think? that he's the kid's father. Sure. It disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Kid doesn't know why. Halbrun's obviously running from something. He's from the area. Yeah, it's... Yeah, and he's tied to that Morgul blade. That's the thing that really makes me real sus about him. Like, if that's... Yeah, where did he get that? Was that one of his dad's blade? Is that, like, the um, fucked-up evil version of the sword that... uh, The broken sword that uh, uh, Aragorn uh, laid, laid claim to? Uh, Niall O. Sidhai is how I want to take a stab at this. Uh, he signed this unpronounceable Irish name. So, <laughs> okay. I had a hard trouble time with it. And he's got an interesting issue he wants to talk about. Longtime listener in Dublin here. There's been a lot of discourse about the actors of color and the rings of power, but I'm surprised to hear nothing about the questionable use of accents. The point has come up in British and uh, Irish media so far, but I've heard nothing from American commentators. In case you don't get it, in T-Rop, there are beautiful noble elves that all speak in Oxbridge, Oxbridge English, and they're the dirty, smelly, if lovable Harfoots who happen to speak in some type of stage Irish brogue. At best, it seems like an outdated and cutesy image of Irishness that's still sometimes found in movies, but at worst, it gets very close to the flat-out racist cartoons of Irish people and the likes of Punch Magazine at the height of the British Empire, which we were routinely depicted as subhuman, or you guessed it, ape-like. This is interesting. I might talk about this here in a minute. 
It's not as if the Irish actors themselves are Irish. I'd love to know what the showrunners were thinking, unless we forget it's something they've actively decided to put in as no one. Uh, it's not something we can pin on Tolkien. Plenty has been made of the accents of characters like Jar Jar Binks and Missaria and Hot D. So the Irish are Irish people fair game or do people just have a blind spot? As some people may have noticed on Twitter this week, Ireland is a country still deeply in recovering from colonialism. And this kind of representation does matter. Yeah, their reaction to the death of the queen, a lot different than people in London, you would mm-hmm. you would imagine. Um, and he also said in a PS that he that he had heard this discussed on other American podcasts and the hosts were kind of dismissive or weren't taking the issue seriously. What do you, do you have any comments yeah. on this? No, I, I think you're right. I, I think there's a blind spot for sure uh, because of skin pigmentation, honestly. It's like that that's what it comes down to, right? Like you, the Irish are considered white, and so they're kind of yes. fair game to be made fun of, to be lampooned, to, to, all sorts of things. Whereas if you try and do that with a black or Asian person, you're going to get just destroyed. Yeah, like I find that all cultures have their kind of blind spots to the social faux pas and whatnot. In America, of course, we're centered on American history and American Mm -hmm. history is defined more than almost anything over the issue of slavery. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's so it's it's like on the one perspective, uh, the Irish people were brutally colonized by an English uh, they like I, I was watching uh, an Irishman was interviewed by a black content creator because they're talking about this very thing about, you know, like colonialism is often seen as like a, a indigenous person of color type of thing. But some of those in- mm-hmm. indigenous people were white, you know, and they were brutalized by other white people. Mm-hmm. And the Irish for centuries, millennia had a dedicated state sponsored destruction of their religion, their culture, their language, even species of animal. Like there used to be a, a species of wolf that was very important spiritually. Uh, politically to the Irish and they were hunted to extinction and eradicated as a as a deliberate, you know, uh, act of cultural violence against them. Um, And much the same way, it's like, you know, the queen is associated with her corgis. Like if imagine if the Irish took over the England, they just extinguished all corgis from the land of 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 Britain. Right. It'd be seen as an affront. Right. Yeah. Yeah. the thing is, a lot of times when Irish issues are brought up in the context of America, it is whataboutism. It's very common totally. for racist people to be like, we talk about the chattel slavery of black people in America, but did you know that the Irish were brought over as slaves and stuff? And like, while this is strictly true, the type of slavery that black people experienced was not the same as the type of indentured servitude slash slavery that Irish people experienced, where that confinement was for a set period of time. Their children are not included in the deal. It's seen as kind of like a way to take away the legitimacy of the kind of unique stain on American everything that that is slavery. So I think when you as an Irish person are bringing up this legitimate, probably dissonance that you're feeling that like no one is taking this like, oh, they're speaking the Irish kind of stuff seriously and, and associated that with letter, l- less advanced, less educated people. You are feeling the friction across the sea of a lot of like Ku Klux Klan types that are using that as a way to dismiss criticism. The stuff's going on our shores. And also mm-hmm. America's the melting pot. Like you mentioned that like ape imagery. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I did a lot. So I did this political podcast a couple of years ago called Three Right Turns. And one of the things that kind of helped me appreciate race in America was understanding my, my own people's history. Like I come from German peasants that immigrated to the country immediately after the war, uh, Civil War, before World War One. And we were kind of like the shoeless, uneducated, illiterate, uh, diseased, dirty uh, immigrants of the day that were flooding the shores. And, oh, my God, what are we going to do with all these people? Um, And we were, especially in World War One, depicted as like these dark skinned apes. Like you'd see Mm -hmm. like these 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 gorillas with clubs uh, wearing the 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 spiked helmet, uh, uh, Kaiser helmets, carrying off white blonde women. And like Jim's people, Irish Americans, uh, Irish American, uh, Italian Americans, Irish Americans. We all took turns being that low person on the totem pole, being associated with the apes, being associated with this. But because we all share a certain pigment that the dominant culture in America shared after a couple of generations, you anglicize your name a little bit. Mm-hmm. You go to, you know, you, you lose your accent and we just become white. You know, we get Cloroxed. So we don't. We can, you know, like we have a bunch of slurs, antiquated slurs that we could call each other and it wouldn't land because like, you know, fuck Irish people, German people, Italian people have been kind of embraced um, and treated as white among American in a way that, that hasn't happened for, you know, descendants of of African slaves. Mm-hmm. So I think that is why in America we fuck this up. And I think it will probably be the job of the next hundred years for us all to kind of like figure out how we've hurt each other as we come together as a global species, God willing, and and figure out all these places and, and have all these stories heard so that we can kind of all feel how things are differently and how things are the same. And we're just kind of in that period of all this coming together globally. And it sucks because like I said, your valid issue is being used here in America as a way to be like, well, black people didn't really have it that bad and they should mm-hmm. really get the sh- their shit together and get, get, get over their centuries of being treated as, as property. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the other side of the, the argument here, which is like when, when people who were literally owned by others for generations, uh, encounter the argument from the Irish that also we were, you know, treated uh, unfairly based on our race, Mm -hmm. then then they kind of laugh at that, right? Like, well, that's the other side of the whataboutism. Well, what about like the worst experience that the black people had here in America? So you kind of get it from both sides um, when you bring those topics up. Yeah. And so you're right. You're right. It it absolutely is a thing. um, And it's something that everyone needs to work on. And it's deep, man. Like that's like that. Yeah. That you know, you throw in a Scottish or an Irish brogue into like your rough and ready adventure character in a fantasy setting. Like that's baked in really fucking deep in this culture. And it's a, oh, yeah. it's a, it's a element of uh, racism or culturism that we have just barely started peeling back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, it'll be interesting. And I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm sorry that you, you felt like this was dismissed in, in wider commentary. But like, I hope you understand maybe why progressive people in America would bristle when people start bringing up Irish stuff when we're talking about, you know, people of colors rep- representation. Anyway, hopefully that helps everybody understand things a little bit better. If not, we're all stuck on this planet. 
for hundreds and hundreds more years, probably thousands. We'll get there eventually or not. We'll all wipe each other out either way. Uh-huh. It's fine with me. <laughs> Chris B says, firstly, I totally agreed with your guys assessment of this episode. I've been a listener since the beginning of Bald Move. The writing and storytelling seems inconsistent. I can't help but wonder if we're seeing the results of different writing and directing teams running the different underconverged stories, such as the Harfoots, Harfeet, and the Dwarfish stories are a delight, but and have energy to their stories that uh, some really clever and some really clever writing. While some of the Elvis stories, uh, especially Galadriel, since she got on the boat, have weird pacing, odd, sometimes stilted dialogue and dumb mysteries caused by people not asking obvious questions. We've seen this before. A series like the Game of Thrones or Stranger Things when they're dealing with multiple threads. Usually, though, in those cases, it's the side stories that suffer. Uh, in this case, the side stories are the ones shining. I hope they start to recenter the Elvish stories rather than the wobble getting worse and worse until it runs off the road. Um, I think this is an underappreciated facet of television creating, as you're probably right. Like a lot of writers get credit for the entire episode that gets broken down by the writing room. And you'll probably have people assigned to like plots and threads. So like it gives the appearance of like this person did this one episode. When reality, you had a whole bunch of people, probably second unit directors and all stuff contributing to this. Do you think that this kind of piecemeal makes some of this stuff feel a little bit more uneven or? It might. I'm not familiar with the the structure of the writer's room here because um, it varies. Like that's the thing about writer's room rooms. No two rooms are the same. Yes. I think there's like sometimes a general pattern that people fall into when making television like, yes, OK, you break the story and then you divide that into episodes and you assign certain people a certain episode to write. I think that's generally how it goes. And then, you know, you come together with your whole writer's room. You review the the script as the writer wrote it. People contribute ideas and then you go back for another draft. Um generally that's true but that's not always true that's not even close to always true so i don't know what the writer's room looks like here but it's certainly possible that that's what's happening that you have certain writers sort of assigned hey you are you know the galadriel team right or you are the the numenor team or whatever um and they come back with stories that no one's really going to question too much maybe because they're assigned to do them i i don't know Oh, yeah, and I, the, one of the, the one of the flashing red lights I had about this is the showrunners who look like very young elf lords themselves don't have a lot of experience. Um, they've worked on pretty small projects leading up to this, and it, they were kind of a blank slate as, as far as you know their creative talent. I think like they don't even have articles on Wikipedia. Uh, and you look them up on uh, on IMDb and if they've done stuff like, you know, they both worked in this show called Escape and Uprising, which I've never heard of. Apparently, they were involved in a Flash Gordon adaptation, which I wasn't familiar with. And then they've got a a half billion dollar enterprise that they've been put in charge of. So that seems insane to me. Absolutely. It does insane seem insane, from insane to me. Perspective. Why it does seem insane. you hire someone without extensive experience making one of the most complicated and expensive productions ever made on well i wish i saw these guys wikipedia articles but because i bet their parents would have blue links too i mean you'll recall that like the double d's dan and david uh uh, over on game of thrones that was their first kind of thing they had written some stuff and they were these young kids (laughs) that studied abroad anybody expected game of thrones to turn into what game of thrones turned into 
But but game uh, HBO did spend a lot of money, even like reshot the pilot twice. They spent a lot of money getting that off the ground. Uh, yeah. Ryan Condal doesn't have the kind of. You know, because like if I was if I was HBO or Amazon, I'd be looking for the Vince Gilligan's. I'd be looking for the Terrence Winters. I'd be looking for people that have told big fucking it doesn't even have to be sword and sandal shit. Just like, could you Mm -hmm. tell a big, compelling story and bring it to a satisfying emotional arc? Do you understand how to tell stories, how to do cinematography? Do you know how to run an effect? But it seems like I don't know, like I, I, I honestly don't know anything about the showrunners, so this could be concerns. I don't know. Uh, secondly, I think the move to New Zealand is really going to hit the visual beauty in season two. I grew up in New Zealand, spent my young year, young years in the rural North Island and went to university on the South Island where I studied ecology and earth science and explored damn near the whole country. As a traveled Kiwi, I can recognize all the landscapes and the shots, and I can see that hardly anything other than built elements is being composited in. This in turn ties the series into the Peter Jackson movies. I've also traveled around the UK and Europe, and while there are many beautiful places, it won't look and feel the same at all. I guess we'll feel like Game of Thrones, which of course shot all over Europe. Um, I know there's all kinds of reasons the studio has given for this change, but it all boils down to money in Jeff's pocket. I think no matter how great or mediocre season one's being season two is going to lack a lot of the magic because of the lack of setting. Super interesting because I was watching house of the dragon last night and this idea came through my head. I I'm, I'm watching house of the dragon. I'm going, this doesn't feel anything like the rings of power. Yeah. Because Everything I'm seeing is just like I said about the you know documentary shows and sports shows, uh, sports games on film. It's just pointing a camera at a thing that already exists. And I know that's not true of everything in Game of Thrones, but or excuse me, House of the Dragon. But you get a lot of stuff for free, and yeah, getting the lighting right is like a huge part of what makes a visual effects shot work. And it's a lot harder to do that when you have to create all the lighting. And you're standing in, you know, something like the volume or whatever, uh, trying to match lighting to a composite shot that you're going to do that hasn't been done yet by a visual effects artist down the road. It's yeah. Yeah. I think taking it out of the natural beauty of New Zealand is going to definitely have an effect on how it looks because those European shots don't look anything like what I'm seeing on Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I and I, I'm sure they can do a pretty good job and I'm sure they shot a lot of like establishing shots so they can then layer those composites in late later. But I agree, like New Zealand is Middle Earth and I mm-hmm. just don't I never bought the thought as persuasive that essentially James Cameron rented out all of New Zealand for the next three years and <laughs> just, it just closed the filmmaking like that's clearly bullshit. It's clearly a cost saving measure. Um, and I, but, but whether it bites them in the ass, I don't know, because if they're smart, they thought a couple seasons ahead and got all the establishing shots and film it all in like 8k, 16k, whatever resolution. Uh, so they've got this stuff in mind, like, Hey, we're going to need to shot for this. We're going to need to shot for this. We're going to need, but if they didn't, and they're still going to have to composite, like Jim says, you can't just take them and drop them off in a, in a, a you know, in a, in a field in front of Miris, Miris Tirith and everything looks good. They're going to have to composite that. I don't know. I did something I'm I am worried about for sure. The lighting alone, like, are they going to be able to shoot outside at all? Because the the light in Europe looks a lot different than it does in New Zealand. Is this true? 
I mean, look at every the shot. The sun you've ever looks seen. different reflected through, but but they do so much color correction on, especially it, like, House of Dragons and Lord of the Rings. Four clear days a year in <laughs> well, England, like you do. Okay, you fair, fair, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the sun is not the same in England when it only shines four days a year. Yeah, I, I, I get you. I get you there. <laughs> right? Like, how are you going to film? Seems like New Zealand's blessed there. with just incredibly seasonable weather all year long. But yeah. uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Chris has. I'm wondering, or Chris has the following to contribute. I'm wondering how you're feeling about how the show has mixed stand-ins or similar references to the main Lord of the Rings character and story. For example, we've got a king who hasn't taken up his mantle. Harfoot's disparaging about a troublemaker in the Shire. Numenor leaders similar to when we got the Gondor, some obvious, some less so. Is this too direct and obvious an execution to make the viewer feel familiar? What I'm enjoying while I'm enjoying the show, I did want to see how things were different. Uh, I think the opening gave me this new elements, but the further we go, it seems to be reverting more to these safety points. What do you think? Because like when he lays it out like this, you're right. The Numenorians seem very much like the people of Gondor, like these uh, bitter minor bureaucrats who are mad that the real big pants people are in town, you know? <laughs> uh huh. And the Harfoots are, oh, we got this wizard guy. Oh, what are we going to do? He's causing adventure and and calls to journeying. And oh, and and yeah, a king who's got a broken blade who might be able to unite the people. It. Yeah, it's kind of, is. I mean, a lot of this is just cyclical, right? In the storytelling, yeah. it's it rhymes. Yeah. So it just kind of follows that it would be similar. And I don't know, because like, know. you know, that that's a that's a common complaint leveled at Star Wars that like Return of the Jedi sure. and the uh, the Force Awakens are all essentially just mm-hmm. remakes of the same fucking movie. But I thought Return of the Jedi is pretty damn cool. I thought the Force Awakens was a fine start to a new trilogy mm-hmm. that largely in my mind ended in tears. But <laughs> uh, we just I just I just don't know, because like I said, it's um you know, my mom taught English, and one things I, one of the things I quickly appreciated is there are not that many novel stories. There's yeah. only so many things that can happen to a human on this earth, and you, you put in magic and folklore. Like, you know, you can give different reskins of the same content, but it's always man versus man, man versus nature, boy meets girl. Uh, like, there's there's only so many twists you can you can do on that the mono myth, you know. So like. That doesn't mean that every time a movie comes out, it's 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 going to be a trash rehash of something that was done back in Gilgamesh's day. Right. Um, I mean, it's all about the execution. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And to drive that point home, I read an article a long time ago about story arcs. Uh, I just looked it up. And, and if you really want me to just ruin your enjoyment of all media, here we go. There are six actual story arcs that any story can take. One, rags to riches. Two, riches to rags. Three, man in a hole, which is fall and then rise. Uh, Double man in a hole, which is fall, rise, fall, rise. (laughs) Icarus story arc, which is rise and then fall. Cinderella, rise, fall, rise. Mm. And Oedipus, which is fall, rise, fall. And that's it. That's it. Like, generally speaking, those are the only six stories you can tell in their structure. And 
every sto- every piece of media you've ever seen will fall into one of those patterns. So yes, I, I get why a lot of this would feel similar because all stories are basically the same thing. And the thing is, we're not going to know. Like, I, we will know a little bit at the end of this season. Uh, I think we'll know if things could still be good. Like, I, I think we might see enough in the first season if this show is just going to be bad. Which I, I've almost uh-huh. eliminated that possibility. But we won't know if this show is truly good for another two seasons, probably. Um, because yeah. it's easy to begin things that are interesting. It's a lot harder to end them, and and especially at this kind of epic scale. So we'll just have to see. And we know generally where this thing is going. Like that's yeah. the thing I'm trying to avoid, you know, specific spoilers and stuff. That's going to tell me where these characters end up other than the ones I already know from Lord of the Rings. But yeah, generally we know where this story leads. Uh, Double T says, Hey guys, I have a different take on Gladriel's surprise and Numenor closing itself off from the elves. It came down to a theme that's already been well established. That is the different perspective for time the elves have compared to other races. I said we'd return to this, and here we are. The episode tells us that the Numenorians with, withdrew the welcome mat to elves quite recently. We know it's because the Queen Regent's predecessors had different ideas. Even if that occurred many years early, we know that decades can pass and seem like barely any time for an elf. It's implied that Galadriel's expedition to find Sauron finding, uh, following the end of the First Age had been a long one. Yeah, like hundreds centuries. of years. Mm-hmm. Centuries. Even from the perspective of the elves to, uh, in her party who were complaining about how long and fruitless it had been. So I found it realistic to Galadriel to return from that long period away and not be aware of the latest in Numenorean fo- foreign policy. This is mm-hmm. a really good point and something that we're, like, I fucking, yeah, I, like, I like, forgot the show I was watching. They just showed that Galadriel had been off to the far-flung regions of the Elves or uh, of the world in her desperate search for what had become of Sauron and Morgoth. So she probably did miss a lot of this frosting of the relationship here. So yeah, no, that's okay. a, that's an that's an on-point criticism, and I'm going to try to take that going forward. David, our buddies from the Lorehound, said. Uh, I had to write in on the regular feedback section because I had to marvel at the fact that Numenorean sailors were all wearing breastplate armor. It seems a little crazy to me. I'm a big Aubrey Matron fan myself. This is the Master and Commander series. Uh, and enjoy the idea of seafaring life a bit, so I was surprised to see them dressed this way. Um, this goes back, so like, I searched, it's so funny, because I searched, can a person in full plate armor swim? And do you know what the first result was? take the armor off you dummy i don't know no it's it's a it's a pointing to the bald moose forum where i asked this very question when jamie (laughs) got thrown into the river wearing full plate armor Uh and there's this guy who wears like 50 pounds of custom fit armor and he tries to swim an olympic size swimming pool and the guy can barely make it 10 feet and i do not think if he was in the deep end that he would be able to rise above again it seems yeah so, yeah, that was wild. But on the other hand, I remember from reading the Aubrey Matran books that a lot of those sailors were very superstitious about learning how to swim. Because in their idea, if you were in a place that you needed to swim, you were probably going to prolong your agonies of drowning because your ship is sunk, you know, hmm. or you fell overboard in the middle of a battle or at the mid- like you do. You do not want to get off the ship. And if you do, you're a dead man. So why learn how to swim? You might as well just fill your 
maybe there's a little bit of that that the Numenorians, like um, the Iron Islanders uh, in Game of Thrones, would wear full plate armor, and that was seen as a, a sign of faith in the sea. That like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. These people trying to put an axe through me on the deck, I can't trust the sea. I can trust. Maybe they're okay. trying to put that same kind of thing behind the Numenorians. Sure. Uh, regardless, the ship design and sail riggings is off the charts. I even love the detail of what might be a studding sail or maybe a sky sail up in between the two main sails. Um, so studding sails or stunsels are sails they attach to the sides of the main rigging to get extra oomph in calm winds. And sky sails are the extra sails they put above the main masts during t- periods of... Uh, calm seas to get all the air that they've got you would you would you would put these down immediately if the wind picked up because it just tear your masts off mm-hmm. but now i was because like this side by side um this side by side mass system would be just the devil itself for going what they call running before the wind when the wind's right to your back and you want to catch all that stuff but i wonder how they would function if the wind's coming from the side because most ships can sail somewhat into the wind. They can't sail right into it, but, mm-hmm. you know, like 45 degrees in either direction, you can kind of sail and zigzag up. I have no fucking clue how these things would work trying to beat up into the wind. Maybe we'll see. But uh, he says, fingers crossed, we'll get some more Numenarian sailing action. I would love that because I'm, I'm a big fan of the sails myself. There's a lot more rings of power to ponder. We'll be back right after this short break. And now, let's dig a little deeper on Dug Too Deep. So we have a last kind of a, a deep dive into the lore that's going to kick off our lore segment. And I want to choose to read this because it's a pretty, like, there's nothing for lore hounds to comment on. This is just pretty factual information. It's background information for Elros and Elrond, the half-elven. Um, so you have Arendil, their father. Their father is Arendil the Mariner, who is a half-elven. He was the one who went and spoke to the Valar, the gods, to persuade them to forgive elves and men and come to their aid in the Battle of Morgoth. Arendil was allowed to do this when others had failed exactly because he was half-elf. He was the one who could speak on behalf of both of the kindreds, uh, and he was still considered mortal man by the gods at the time. He'd made this journey after all the elven strongholds had been destroyed and all hope was lost. Presumably when you saw the elves swimming in the fire seas with a spear stuck through their chest, that's when the, huh. you know, yeah. Arendil, uh, the, 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 the beloved took, took pity uh, or, or went to speak to them. Anyway, the uh, gods listened, took pity. He then accompanied the mighty host that returned to Middle East, Middle Earth to defeat Morgoth in the last battle. It was Arendil in his ship that can now magically fly, along with the eagles who defeated the flying dragons and were unleashed in the Tempest of Lightning and Flame in the last stand of Morgoth. Elwing was their mother, who was also a half-elven, and the granddaughter of Baron, a man in Luthien and Elf. You might re- recognize those names as being pretty big, famous names in the, the, Loken, sorry, the Tolkien canon. Elwing was the keeper of a Cimmeril that Baron had cut from the crown of Morgoth as his bride price for marrying Luthien. Luthien had even more magical blood because her mother was the Maya, a lesser god called Melian. 
So the Maiar were a step below the Valar in terms of demigoggery. They're, oh my God, you're killing me. Oh my semigods. God, I feel the elf juice leaking out. <laughs> Look, guys, there's only so on much elf juice that Jim's got. And every time I hit him with a Fianor, that the elf <laughs> juice drains. It's just like a pool of sweat appears on his head, trickles down. That's elf juice we're never going to get back. Okay, I'm never getting it back. So you have Ellen Deal who is the guy that guy's light was in the file of Ellen deal. I think that that uh, Galadriel gave Frodo in uh, the Lord of the Rings. Okay. You got Elwing, their demigod mother. Uh, they met and lived in the last refuge of the elves where Elrond and Elros were born. So, you know, Elrond, we heard Elros found in Numenor here. Where does their refuge fit into this all? Uh, he's the king who still lives. Okay. Their refuge was attacked by the last sons of Fionor when Arendil was out marinering. Elrond and Elros were captured and Elwing escaped to the sea with the Cimmeril. She was magically saved and delivered to Arendil's ship by one of the gods. Uh, it was then by the light of the Cimmeril that they were able to find the passage into the Undying Lands and plead on behalf of both elves and men. Because of these great deeds, the half-elven family were all allowed to choose their fates. This is the defining feature of the half-elves. Elwing, Arendil, and Elrond chose to be counted with the elves and Elros with men. This is also why Arwen gets to make this choice in Lord of the Rings. Do you remember her saying to her father that she chooses a mortal life? Uh, As she is part of this family, it's also why Elros is given the island of Numenor with the faithful. In summary, Arendil and Elwing are super important and special to both elves and men. Together, they are allowed to reach the Undying Lands. He convinced the gods to save the elves and men when no one else could. Elrond and Elros, as his sons, are unique among the peoples of Middle-earth because they also share high lineage with the Maya. So there you go. He says he wanted to continue this or include this backstory because it's all first aid stuff. And it's amongst the stuff that the Tolkien family is most jealously protecting and their estate. So we probably won't get this information mm-hmm. directly told to us. So if you want to know the backstory that we won't hear otherwise, there it is. And this also kicks off the Lorehound segment, the lore, the lore, the lore part of the cast. Now for the lore cast, I've got John from the Lorehounds. We're we're going just you and me. Uh, the fellowship has shrunk to <laughs> two. Your buddy David is uh, heading for. Uh, I uh, do what it what the Easterlands. Yeah, he's going all the way uh, to hang Western, out with uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> elephants and and whatever else you can find from the east. Alifons, Mister John, he's going to see. Uh, he's heading over to Europe, so he'll be gone for a couple weeks. Me and Jim are going to be helping John out on the Lore Podcast, and he's here helping us out. And Jim, Jim said, you know uh, that that last email or two with the with the names and everything just broke me. I'm tapping <laughs> out. It's just John and I tonight for the lore heavy lifting. So let's get right to it. Lauren has a question about uh, Dwarven secret theory. You know, I talked about that uh, second episode that they had the mystery MacGuffin box, and I thought it was mithril. Um, I think some people were guessing it might be the Arkenstone, which I didn't think it was right yeah. chronologically for that or even spatially. Yeah. But uh we got a third theory. My first thought was also mithril, but I was struck by the glow that a pure, clear, silvery light it emanated or emitted. Rather, it reminded me of the light of Ellen deal. The Galadriel gives Frodo in a bottle. We talked about Ellen deal uh, or not. Aaron deal yeah. I think she's saying Ellen deal, but she means Aaron deal yeah. because it's, it's really easy to get that confused. 
Um, I also recall the second tree in Valinor being a silvery white. I think the Durins have at least one Cimarill. Didn't the king mention, does he know, or something like that to Durin? We know Elrond highly respects Elven Smithing, and he relayed the story of the Cimarils when he was with Celebrimbor. John, what's your read on the likeliness, likelihood of the mystery MacGuffin box containing a Cimarill? All right. If we're going accurate to the lore, there is zero chance here. Uh, because the, the Silmarillion portion, the Quenta Silmarillion portion of the Silmarillion, that's the story of what happened to the Silmarils, how the Noldor created them and lost them and went to war for them. That ends with the Silmarils fulfilling this prophecy from Mandos, the Doom Vela. Doom is in fate. Uh, that means that the Silmarils will end up one in the sky, one in the earth, and one in the sea. And at this point, they're there. Now, Tolkien did have the opportunity to bring back in a Silmaril. Uh, with the the Arkenstone, as you mentioned before, could have done that uh, with, with the dwarves there. But one that was mm. in Erebor, that was in the Lonely Mountain, that we uh, that we right. saw in the Hobbit movies, the Hobbit books, uh, and, and two, it was not a Silmaril. He explicitly said this is not a Silmaril. Okay, uh, so it'd be not not that this show seems like it's going to be shy from deviating to the canon where it needs to, wants to, to fill in holes, uh, but that that would be pretty big. Yeah, pretty, pretty big uh, reach. Yeah, pull. because that's supposed to be pretty uh, final. And I'll say this. I think that the reason that they're going so hard on the Silmaril stuff is because they want you to understand Elvish politics and they all go back to what happened with those jewels in the first stage. Right, right, right. OK, uh, Henry says in canon, isn't Galadriel like six foot four? How can she not grow until she defeats Sauron? She seems very tiny in the show. She does seem pretty tiny is- in the show. Can I also say that I was just reading a random lore article about Ellen Deal, the tall, yeah. and I guess canonically he's seven foot 11 tall. Yeah, that was actually the, the thing I was going to bring in. I dug into Unfinished Tales and I, <laughs> okay. I look, they have these random Numenorean measurements that I will not bore you with. But sure. essentially, he's like half a yard taller than Galadriel. And uh, yeah, yeah. So so. Even if she is very tall, it is not unreasonable that he is towering over her. Yeah. And then again. Yeah. I, and, but I I also say that I go, I don't see any of that in the show. Like yeah. it, it wasn't like Ellen deal was yeah. Like Yao Ming plus Yao Ming standing on a milk crate tall. Uh, is, is that cause like to me, this is reflections of Tolkien kind of like refactoring his biblical stuff because in, in the really old parts of the Bible and the Genesis, um, there were these men of fame that were kind of like half angel, half men that grew to like preposterous proportions and they lived extremely long right. lives. I, I think there's some of this kind of like half remembered mythology that Tolkien was incorporating to kind of sprinkle in like, oh, these are literally supermen. Yeah, I mean, Uberman. Yeah, there's a ton of that. I mean, I, I think I sent you and Jim a message how like the story of the end of Numenor is really the same story as the end of Judah. Like he just copy pasted that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but as far as the height thing, all Numenorians are essentially the Galadriel height. So she should be about eye level with, with the average Numenorian. Oh yeah. They're all about six. Four. I forgot. This is a show that is, does adjust. So they could, it, it could be that uh, we see when, well, but so are we supposed to understand that? Uh, what is his name? Halbrand? Is That's he super point. tall too? Because he's got the the blood of the first men coursing through his veins or some shit now too. He, I mean, if what he has said is true and he is from the Southlands, he should not be related to the Edain. The Edain. 
um, which are which are the people who become the, the Numenorians. He should he should be regular man height. Um, so okay. I don't know. I mean, here's the thing: I would rather them have actors that encompass the character more than I would rather <laughs> them have Galadriel be an accurate Amazon. Yeah, right. Yeah, six foot four women and seven foot eleven men just are not to be found in Hollywood. <laughs> you can't just pick up a phone book and it's you know. True. Uh, Henry also says, lastly, why do some orcs talk and others don't? The orc that was in Bronwyn's house was that a feral orc? <laughs> uh, has he not been domesticated yet? I'm not sure if there's an explanation for this. Can I take a crack yeah, at ahead. it and see what the lore master says? So canonically, the orcs speak the black speech, right? Um, but they can speak the common tongue of man. It's my guess that the orc in the house just didn't bother. Like yeah. he was there. He was just going to kill these people. He didn't give a shit about being community or understanding being communicated. Whereas the guys running the slave pits are trying to communicate with their slaves. And so they're using, you know, they're, they're, they're wanting to be understood. Is, is, is that about right? I think or that's a perfect explanation. What I get wrong there? Yep. I think that they only learned Western. They only learned the uh, the the common speech because they needed to. They needed it for their slaves, and they needed it to work with like the men who had turned toward Morgoth. Can I ask you this? And if I'm putting you on the spot, uh, you know, because like I said, the the Tolkien lore is limitless. Is is the black speech speech is the black black speech a corrupted form of Quinya? Don't know. But I can More dig into less. that for you. Um, I, I believe it is a corrupted form of Elvis. Yeah. Okay. Because that 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 like that's interesting. Because just as Morgoth has said, it's of twisted creation into his various forms. It's kind of interesting that like the gift of the elves, the language was also twisted. Well, uh, you know, the the technically canon version of the orc origin is in the Silmarillion, and that is that. He created Morgoth created orcs based on corrupted elves. However, right. Tolkien was really bothered by that in the end because he thought it messed with like free will and he thought it messed with like elves being this perfect man before the fall character. So that's gotcha. it's problematic. He I think Christopher made a little bit of a weird call with including that in the Silmarillion. But yeah, that would make sense huh. as why you had a corrupted form of Quenya become the black speech. If that is what it is, I'd have to get back to you on that. Okay. Uh, Matt from Quebec says in the first feedback on T-Rop, you guys talked about the fact that Aaron Deer would have watched Bronwyn grow up from infancy and how weird that might have been. For sure, that'd be true for human elf relationships, but I think it would be true for a lot of elf elf relationships as well. If Elrond got sweet on a lady or man elf 1500 years from the time of the show, for sure, you would have seen that elf grow up while an age gap of 20, 30 or 40 years would raise progressively more eyebrows in the human world. Would a hundred year gap be that big a deal between a twenty seven hundred year old elf and a twenty six hundred year old elf? Two hundred years, five hundred years. Um, all I'm saying is it seems like elven society would almost have to have been pretty accepting of relationships between folks with age gaps. that would be impossibly long for humans, including the fact that they might have known each other. When one was an elf grown and the other still crapping in their little elven britches. <laughs> uh, and then we'll have a side note that I want to talk to. Do you have any idea? Because like to me, um, I, I, I guess in my head that like once an elf reaches full grown maturity, uh-huh. which I can't remember if that's like 100 or how, however many years it takes for them to develop that, that like they'd essentially be 
fair game. I don't know if like a 9,000 year old first elf Noldor would would stoop so low to snap to cradle rob a hundred year old. But like, I don't think a 1500 year old elf uh, getting with a 300 year old elf would raise too many elf brows. All right. So <laughs> this opens up a whole can of worms that I would direct you to the elf episode of the second age that we did chapter three uh, on our Lorehounds yeah. feed because that I go deep into that and and it is debatable mm-hmm. within Tolkien. If you want a direct source, the nature of Middle Earth goes into this, but the aging of elves is both debatable and really complicated. the The long mm-hmm. short of it is that uh, depending on where they live, they age at about one human year to a hundred. Sorry, a hundred human years years to one elf year. I keep saying ears mm-hmm. because I'm so focused on their pointy ears. No, um, <laughs> sure, sure. It's because you're racist. It's towards true. Those. You it's know, true. You want to say not as much as Galadriel, but she... yeah, yeah. I mean, not as much as Galadriel is <laughs> racist towards the men in Numenor. Oh my god. True. <laughs> true. But uh, yeah, so so basically, like a hundred to one is is their aging ratio in some writings of Tolkien, and but they do age sort of yeah. normally. Like they can have kids in their like mid twenties, so around like twenty five hundred years old. And they have like a window where they can have kids. They have a window where they start to get old. And as they fade, they become like invisible to the human eye and they they just sort right. of start to fade. But their but their essence basically survives until the end of all creation. Yeah. So yeah. that's how they age. That's kind of complicated as far as like age differences in a relationship. Yeah, that's definitely like acceptable more in Elvis culture. I mean, you can this is a spoiler for the Lord of the Rings, but I feel like most people watching the show are already there for um, Elrond does uh-huh. marry an elf, his junior um, and a Calabrian uh, and, and she and they have a daughter together and it's fine and, and nobody cares about it. So, yes, they are much more used to that. However, I do think that it is a little bit different in the culture, whereas like a, a human growing up a lot faster will have less time to like attune themselves to the world around them and to like you know you want to bring in grooming (laughs) like things like that so i do think that it's a little grosser for an elf uh an elf who knows a human as a baby rather than an elf who knows an elf as a baby well, and you think of the the great love uh human elf love affairs i'm thinking like baron and luthien Uh They, they they came across like Baron was a man full grown. Luthien was an elf, you know, yeah. uh, ready for for to, of marrying age. And they come across each other in like a forest clearing. Yeah. And it's kind of love at first sight. That's a lot different than the Borwin or, or uh, uh, Bronwyn and Arendir, where he is assigned not to her village because she's from a different village. But my, I, I thought that this uh, Osterith fortification probably served the entire region yeah. so I, I i feel like aaron deer has probably seen her grow up maybe he wasn't aware of her at first and she but like i, I feel like it's again i'm not gonna say it's creepy because i don't know like what you know i didn't see how he interacted with her when she was a little girl and whatnot but i i feel like it there's it's a different when you, someone is watching someone grow mm-hmm. up and like oh wait until the fruit ripens and i'll pluck it versus you come you know full grown for your species your race and you meet on equal footing and that's a completely, you know, cause it's, it's, it's all about the power imbalances when we're talking about yeah. creepy yeah. other than the, 
you know, the 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 incest type biological bugaboo uh, taboo. It's 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 power imbalance. Does someone have an imbalance in power, knowledge, wisdom, money, whatever that they are leveraging to get into someone's pants? Mm -hmm. And that that's what where it makes it real creepy. Um, The follow on question from Matt was, it seems like monogamy for eternity would require require elves to have willpower beyond the grasp of mortals. But maybe that was part of the gift or curse Uru Aluvatar bestowed upon them from the beginning. What say you about elvish libido <laughs> and passion? Yeah, I mean, elves to Tolkien are man before the, before the fall. They are perfect humans, basically. So, yep, they're not cheating on their spouses. They are just doing the right thing all the time, even if they're assholes a little bit sometimes. They are always on the side of good. They're always doing at least trying to do the right thing. So, yep, you're right. That's pretty, basically how Erulubitar made them. I read the, because when you guys got into this chapter three, the elves, I went and did like a deep dive of myself because I find this stuff mm-hmm. fascinating. And I, and I, especially since I didn't have to remember it, I've got <laughs> you guys there for that. I just started reading. And one thing that stuck in my mind is, you know, and the idea of Tolkien being the quintessential Catholic and that the elves being kind of like perfect, perfect Catholic people. Is it the way they described it is like elves when they get into their equivalent 20s kind of become quickly inflamed with passion where it's like, oh, my God, yeah. this is the most beautiful, sexiest, handsomest elf. And, and they <laughs> write poetry and they court each other and they kiss and they neck and they 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 get together and they get married and then they pump out a few kids, however much their their elf vitality. And then. In middle age, that passion, not into like a, a an act of dislike, like they're an old married couple and they hate each other, but like they start painting more <laughs> and doing more quilting, yep. and they're they're they they they're they're like yeah, their their love affair is like in the kind of the his, history. So it's like they they do what they do, they have sex to procreate, and then they don't do that filthy stuff no more. They turn their their thoughts to higher things, and I thought that was interesting because that's essentially how a good Christian should should do, you know, you stop, you stop all this unseemly sex when, when you get too old and you've had enough kids and, and you just pursue higher pursuits. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, there's even more, if you want to dig into that, like uh, when elves first awoke, Tolkien once wrote that they awoke in Quivian and in the waters next to their soulmate. And they would just, uh, and, and that the, the male elves just couldn't wait to see their, their, uh, female spouses so they uh uh they woke them up a little too early which is why female elves age more quickly and uh because they were built to wake up later it's a whole thing like you know soulmates and all that and any truth that aragon gave up his life and relinquished his strength when arwen went into elven menopause it's like no no reason for me to be around anymore (laughs) Oh my gosh! There's no more no no more elf nookie. So I'm just going to uh, pass on the throne to my son and check and and punch yeah, it's out all over. Uh, it's all dead bedroom. <laughs> it's that's that's what brought Aragorn down. Uh, all right, that's that's uh, that's the lore questions we got. Actually, there's a little bit of a, a a deep lore, maybe a little bit too spoilery. I'm going to uh, bump like a like a, a volleyball over to you, set up for a set and spike uh, that you'll be talking about perhaps on next week's lore podcast. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, Doug, if if you if you didn't hear our responses because I'm kicking at the lore hounds, we'll see what they do with it. Uh, John, would you like to tell people where they can find and follow along with the Lorehounds uh, throughout the remainder of the season? Yeah, so we are every Monday putting out a lore cast where we dig into uh, a couple 
deep lore topics that we see during the episode. Uh, we talk about anything that we're getting in feedback at secondage at baldmove.com. And uh, we're actually having a couple guests over the next few weeks because uh, my my lore hound pal David is out of the country. So uh, we have Marilyn Pukila coming on this week to talk to me about magic in Tolkien and his conception of it. Because uh, you know it's a soft magic system. It's it's uh, interesting, but it's not that well defined. But how did how did he look at that? I mm-hmm. think that's super fascinating. Uh, and then uh, sure. maybe another uh, uh, guest that I am not ready to announce yet. But uh, we got a lot of great content coming on. We have you and Jim coming on, and we're really excited about that. So you can find us at the Lorehounds feed. You can follow us on Twitter at the Lorehounds, or talk to us on the Bald Move Discord. Sounds good. Uh, looking forward to talking to you again next week. Uh, Jim will be guesting on the show to help you out on the lore side. And of course, you'll be back for the, the lore corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks again, John. Uh, and that will do it for our show. Jim, like I said, already tapped out. Uh, if you want to send us feedback for this show, it's dug too deep at baldmove.com. Of course, you can follow everything that Bald Move does on Twitter, twitter.com slash baldmove. Join us at that Discord John was talking about, discord.baldmove. Uh, com. And if you want to get access to ad free feeds and special features like our instant take and instant talk pork podcast for uh, how, uh, House of the Dragon, as well as Lunch with Jim and Aaron, our first run movies, quips, uh, uh, all, all of our bonus content. It's really easy to do. So support dotbaldmove.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Doug Too Deep and uh, the Lorehounds Lorecast. Until then, I'm Aaron and. This is John. (laughs) See you, John, next week. See you.